This episode is dedicated to two of the most kind, loving, intelligent, creative, and humorous souls that the world lost within the past decade. Erica Kanigita was a dear friend to me and this episode's guest, the Honorable Perrin Bradley. Kareem Bradley was a very, very close friend. To say I miss his presence is an understatement. While I miss him as a friend, my guest misses him as a brother. To Erica and Kareem, we miss you both. The times we spent together, coupled with the impact you had on our lives, will forever be etched in our minds and hearts. The Honorable Perrin Bradley grew up in a tight-knit village on the tiny Caribbean island of Anguilla. He admits that as a teen, he really had no clue what he wanted to do with his life. It was his mother's constant guidance, persistence, and prayers, coupled with visits to his neighbor's vast library, that sparked young Perrin's imagination and showed him that there was so much more to aspire to. A few years went by, and he found himself working at a local bank, driving a cool classic car, and dating a wonderful young lady. What more could he want? Though that combination of spoils may have been enough for some, Perrin wanted more. With the encouragement of his mother and some friends, he decided to attend Washington, D.C.'s Howard University. Perrin's tenure at university unlocked new experiences, perspectives, and knowledge. He credits those days for playing a significant part in shaping the man he is today. A consummate professional, he has served his island in several capacities, not only teaching, but more importantly, learning along the way. Perrin is as sharp as a whip, witty, and possesses, among other subjects, great knowledge of world politics, economics, finance, and, well, reggae music. He is one of the most interesting persons you can converse with. Today, he is the deputy governor of his island. Amid challenges, he holds his head high and continues to do his best for the people of Anguilla. This is the story, thus far, of the Honorable Perrin Bradley. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. He is a graduate of my alma mater, the deputy governor of a British territory, and in his words, an amateur drummer. The Honorable Perrin Bradley, welcome to Planet 30. Crispin, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here. Now, you grew up in Anguilla in the, in the 80s and the 90s. What, what was life like on the tiny island of Anguilla in those days? Oh, man. I, I, to me, I had an amazing childhood. Uh, I grew up in the village of South Hill. Uh, very close to the community. I grew up in a, in a row and a lot of extended family, my cousins, my neighbors. We all lived in one block of, of Salt Hill, and it was just always a lot of fun, good energy, and so forth between me and my cousins. And, and, and I just, just had a, a wonderful childhood. Just remember playing, we used to walk to and from school in a, in a, in a big group, you know, and it's just been, 
I just had a wonderful childhood. Awesome, awesome. What what was the dream back then, career wise? Well, um, for me, I I had no clue on what I wanted to do. To be quite honest, I I, I just had no clue. Um, that all changed when I got to high school, and hmm. um, actually we moved from South Hill to Little Harbor in the the mid nineteen eighties. And my next door neighbor was uh, Mr. Franklin Connor, OBE of blessed memory. Uh, at that time, he would have been the financial secretary uh, for the government of Angola, uh, permanent secretary of finance, as we would know that position to be known today. And he was quite a big, he was quite an intellectual, he had lots of books, he had a study in the library. And I remember just getting lost in his books. And it was the first time I saw a university degree, he had a, a university in accounting, sorry, a degree in accounting from um, the University of West Indies. And I remember seeing the diploma hanging on the wall and asking him, you know, what that was about and so forth. And that was my first clue that there was something beyond, you know. Um, so I would have to say that that that, that is the one that, I, even though I didn't, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I did realize that instantly that there was something beyond just going to high school and primary school and so forth. Interesting stuff. So, parent, you you sometimes you know we we've spoken about this over the years. Uh, you admit to being sort of a, a, a mischievous teen. Yeah, <laughs> I, did, I did go to a, a bit of a, a rebellious streak um, later in, in, in high school. Um, you know, you and I had an issue back then because of something your mom did, you know, and we talk about it now. It's just it's 30 years after the fact, but that was that was just part of, of me going for my own, you know. So, yeah, I, I was a bit of a, 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 a mischievous Back in high school, <laughs> especially in later years. That's so, just true, very true. From mischievous teen to deputy governor of the, the entire country. Now, at what moment do you think you snapped out of it? Like, what was that eureka moment when you said, hey, this isn't the way? Um, it's, quite, it's, it's a very good question. And I, and I, I, I was reflecting on it recently. But I think what, what, what it all changed, um, a cousin of mine, he was arrested. He was in police custody for taking up on somebody's vehicle for to go for a joyride. Now, that, that could have ended um, in 101 different ways, but fortunately it ended with him being arrested, uh, taken into custody for taking a vehicle on a joyride. But again, that could have ended um, differently. And I think that is the moment that kind of made me realize that, you know, a lot of the stuff you were doing um, is not fun and games. It's quite serious. And, and there are things... Beyond um, the no, you know, you have parents, you have people who love you and care about you uh, and who will be greatly disappointed in some of those activities and so forth. So that is the moment that made me realize that a lot of the shenanigans that we get up to was just simply not not ideal, you know, especially if you wanted to have a future in Angola. So you moved on from that period in life. And of course, you would have worked at the bank and and, and, uh, then you went on to Howard University. Now, I know, um, as I mentioned in the intro, uh, we were both attending at the same time. Well, what was your experience like, in your words? Um, I, I, I had no appreciation for the legacy of Howard Institution and so forth. I just, I just had no appreciation before I went. Um, because prior to going after to, to Howard, um, I, like you said, correct, I had, a back, I had a job at the bank. Um, so I was on a paycheck. I was driving my grandfather's 1981 Dodge Aries, <laughs> and I was dating at the time. I was in love. Uh, I had a girlfriend and everything. So as far as I was concerned, 
that was the end of it. I had arrived, and I, that was it. There was nothing else uh, beyond that, you know. And what more can they offer me? There you go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think my mom, but at the time, um, lots of my very close friends were all moving out to university and doing things. Um, and and I think my mom made it pretty clear that this was not going to work for her. So therefore, I needed to figure out what I was going to do sooner rather than later, you know. And I had, you know, my, my cousin Alec was at Howard University. Another close friend of ours, um, Enzo Gums was at Howard University at the time, Erica Fleming. Um, we all grew up in Angola. We were all classmates and family. Um, and between the three of them saying, hey, you should consider coming to, to Howard. If, you, if, you, if, you, if you're considering university, then Howard's university is, is, is the place you have to be considering. And it was the one and only university I applied to, and I got in. So for me, going to Howard is more of a, I mean, it sounds ridiculous now, but a fluke in that I, I hadn't, only because I knew people there. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't appreciate the fact that, you know, what this great institution was. But when I got there and I got into it and so forth, I was perhaps the biggest break, biggest opportunity I've had in my life because it set me up for everything else that came after. So I'm very grateful uh, for the Howard University experience. Um, in terms of the experience itself, uh, I've made friends from all over the world. I've got friends from Africa, from out of the Caribbean and so forth. And when you sit in a classroom with such um, gifted students from all over the world, all these interesting and varied backgrounds, uh, it, just, it just makes you realize that the, the world is a, a weird and wonderful place and that there is so much to learn and to explore. And I, th- I, I thank Howard for opening my eyes to all of those issues. But it may, I, at the same time, it made me want to come back home because I realized that um, with the knowledge I would have gained at, at, at Howard, that I had a duty to come and give back to my country, which is why I came back home. What would you say is uh, the most valuable lesson you learned outside of the classroom? That's a very good question. You know what I learned? That, that in, in this life, I don't care how smart you are, how gifted you are as far as intelligence is concerned, if you do not know how to work and appreciate people from diverse and different backgrounds, doesn't really matter how bright you are. Because what at Howard, you met people from different races, different backgrounds, different cultures, different religions, you know, um, and, and, and you, had, you, you had to do group projects. You had to sit in class. You had to hear different viewpoints. And if you don't, if you don't learn how to um, manage those situations, if you don't learn to appreciate diversity, and I think that was the biggest lesson I learned outside of the classroom. What did I get? Nothing academic about that, but um, in terms of just appreciating the differences in people and learning from those differences. Because what you might find, even though you, you may grow up a particular way with a particular view, you know, once you talk to somebody else from a totally opposing view, you may come to understand, you know, why they, and, and, and form a common understanding. So I think that was, for me, that was one of the most important lessons I learned. I would definitely agree. Now, you touched on this a little bit earlier. You know, you said that Howard set you up mentally and showed you that you needed to go back to Anguilla to to give your contribution. Now, h- how does that work at 20-something years old when Wall Street, especially in your field, finance, Wall Street or, or, or Silicon Valley and all these other places are perhaps offering you huge salaries. And of course, this was before the crash. So huge salaries and big opportunities. What mechanism tell you know made really made you say, hey, I gotta go home and contribute instead of staying here. Well, I it was it was 
was I was just telling um it was it's youth week in Angola last week and I was just telling a group you know people the same story. Um when I started university, the first year, um my mom was in one because you know back then it wasn't as um sophisticated as, as it as it was now. It was a very manual the whole registration of classes, paying the fees. It was a very manual process. It was an exercise in patience. Yes, yes. You know, remember those long lines to, to register, to pay, to choose your classes and so on. You'd have to sit in front of somebody with a phone and they'll key the stuff in. Like, just go online and get all that stuff done. Um, but she was in one line dealing with the financial part of it. I was in another line dealing with the academic side. But then the following year, I had to handle the entire transaction myself. And when I opened that envelope and I saw the figure on the check, it kind of made me realize that, hey, this is a huge investment that's been made in me. So therefore, I need to make sure that these folks get their money's worth. So that, for me, that was one of the big, the big pushes to make sure that, hey, no matter what happens, you know, the people of Angola must get a return on their investment. So that, and that, that was part of the spark as well. Plus, my mom and dad were both um, public servants, and I saw my, my mom especially was a great inspiration for me in terms of um, being community-minded and wanting to be in a public service. So I have to credit her for giving me that bug as well. So follow up on that uh, question, Perrin. Comment on the brain drain uh, epidemic that seems to be happening, especially in the Caribbean, because, you know, you have a lot, you, you'll hear a lot of conversations about the excellent work that Caribbean natives uh, or Caribbean people are doing in the United States or in Europe or in Australia. Uh, and, and those persons, I mean, they could be back home contributing to the islands. What, what do you think accounts for that? Like, and, and how, how, you know, what accounts for Caribbean people wanting to stay overseas? And how is that affecting the Caribbean? You know, from, from, from my end, um, I, I can, I'm hearing a lot of anecdotes and stories and so forth. Um, but from my, my perspective, when I look around the, the public service especially, you know, I, I can't speak for the private sector. I, can, I, can only, I have more of an uh, insight into what's going on in there. The public sector, all right, at this point we have quite a lot of young department heads, right? People who are under 40, you know, folks who still have another 15, 20 years in the positions that they're in. And Angola is only so big. So therefore, if you're someone joining the public service now after, right, it, it's, I can see where persons may become a bit frustrated and so forth in terms of upward mobility, right? So I believe in those instances, because of the lack of, um, of space to grow, some persons may feel it necessary to, to, to leave Angola. But the, the, for me, the whole point is if, if once the civil services are agile and nimble enough to stimulate activity in the private sector, that there will be opportunities for those persons to make their contributions. It doesn't have to be the public service. You can make your contributions in entrepreneurship and in the private sector. And I see a lot of opportunities now opening up, especially in hospitality and financial services uh, for young people. Where I see most of the the um, the commentary is around the arts in particular, because uh, we had a big remember the, the theme for Youth Week uh, for this year is about the, the orange economy and our creatives and so forth, uh, who are finding it very difficult to practice their trade here in Anguilla, and I think it's just a limitation of our size, you know, unfortunately. Now, Parent, tell us what can countries do to sort of incentivize their citizens to come back especially after university and training, you know, or other experience that they, they, they may have outside of, you know, these small island nations. What can governments really do? I, I, um, I come at it from a totally different angle. 
rather ah. than 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 um what the governments do, right? I I personally believe that there's got to be something innate within you and your spirit about your country and wanting to give back and wanting to contribute. So as far as I'm concerned, it's it's the whole you know John Kennedy that famous quote about ask not uh, what the country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. To mm. me, I think that's where it starts. Maybe maybe I have a different perspective. Uh, because I got government assistance to go after university, right? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the only one that, that would have been in that situation, but I, I, perhaps that is that, that is probably what drove me more than anything else. So I think the fact that so even if you wanted to start, yeah, the fact that some in, in some cases the government would have invested heavily in some young persons to develop them and train them up into um, uh, to have a particular skill set, whether it's it's you know, as particularly in the medical field, we have a, a lots lots of. Uh, Doctors and nurses out there. Um, also, I think what we've done over the last couple of years is actually incentivize like custom duty exemptions and so forth. If you want to come back to Angola, uh, we make it easier for you to bring your personal effects back. So, government has, has done a number of things uh, to do that. But I think more than anything else, we have to just make sure that there are opportunities for people to come back to, right? Whether it's in the creative economy or the, 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 the traditional economy, you know, you just have to make sure that the economy at, at home itself is strong and, and attractive to person wanting to come back because at the end of the day we all have to eat we all have bills to pay so therefore if there are no opportunities to come back to then uh, what's the point no matter how passionate you are about the country if there's no work if you can't play a trade or practice a craft then what is the point so i think in that in that sense governments need to make sure that the economy is strong and robust that there are jobs there are opportunities to come back to i think that's the big thing but you know parent i must say after four or five years living in the, in a city like Washington DC with the conveniences with the entertainment etc it must have been hard to readjust how did you deal with uh, readjusting to uh, Anguilla um for me it, it 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 was not as hard as i had expected for two reasons number one i always knew that i, I was going to come back home so it was always in the back of my mind that i was going i was going to come back home uh, and number two, um, my job, my, 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 my career has always been very interesting and very fulfilling. It gave me a lot of opportunities to travel. I got to work on some cool stuff. So I, I was very fulfilled career-wise. And also, it was good to be back home with family and so forth. Uh, I, I miss the beach, going to the beach on a regular basis. You know, I'd start my day with a swim in the morning. You know, uh, my, my commute was like less than 10 minutes to get to the office and so forth. Um, but I, I did miss, you know, because, you know, you know, all those, we, we used to have on a regular basis over at, at the different houses back in D.C., the barbecues and so forth. Uh, I was in a serious long-term relationship at the time, uh, so I, I really miss her. So, that was, so it, was, it was a bit of a challenge on that, and, and you're absolutely right uh, in terms of the entertainment, because you know I love concerts and live music, and in Angola, you've got to wait for Moon's Fest of a carnival in order for that, for that to come around. You know, but um, so to me, those... So the adjustments were more on the personal side, mm-hmm. you know. But my mom, my mom was very glad to have me back home, and I, like I said, I missed her cooking, you know. <laughs> so all of that was part of it. I, I, I built a, I built a home, um, started building within three years. So I, I had enough to keep me occupied and grounded uh, with, but those day-to-day um, ups and downs and so forth. So the whole idea of of adjusting for me, it was just swept up in what I had to do on a, on a, on a daily basis. In addition to that, my, my job involves, um, in the other part of my career, in job involves extensive travel. So 
I literally got to see the world um, during the first part of my career because I did a lot of work in financial services. So I would have traveled to far from places like, you know, Hong Kong, Thailand, China, you know, Paris, London, you know, all over the U.S. and so forth. So the, the, the career um, the career opportunities were what, to me, made that adjustment a lot easier for me. Run us down a little bit because I know you have vast experience uh, in the, the the public sector. What are so? What were some of your uh, job titles or positions? I, yeah, my first. I, I came into the public service as the deputy registrar of companies. You know that is the office that deals with the registration of companies and so forth. You know people people talk about offshore companies, right? So the register the companies registry would have been the entity where those companies would have been formed and registered. Uh, so part of my job would have been to kind of encourage persons to use Anguilla as opposed to any other offshore vehicle. So that involves some marketing those services, involved extensive travel and conferences throughout the world. Uh, and from there, I moved on to a position called trade and investment. So that would have been, that unit was responsible for, it's a trade promotion, investment promotion, and the persons wishing to do business in Anguilla. Their first stop would have been uh, my office to kind of, you know, explain to them what's required and what's expected, evaluate those proposals and so forth. Uh, so some, uh, Seven Beach is the one that comes to mind that came in as a three-page proposal when I landed on my desk. Um, you know, I would have, you know, vetted it, looked at it, offered my advice to the minister at the time and the permanent secretary also. And to see that go from a three-page proposal to a fully functioning hotel of persons employed with guests, you know, Taxpaying um, entities generating jobs and economic activity fills me with a sense of pride, you know. Uh, and then from there, I moved on to a position called compliance manager, uh, which is quickly related. It was closely related to my position over in financial in the company's registry, because you know to play in this in this industry, you have to meet a lot of international regulatory compliance issues. You know, in terms of tax avoidance, transparency, terrorist money laundering and finance and so forth to make sure that Angola is compliant with those um, provisions. And once again, because of the international nature of that work, it gave me great exposure uh, to various jurisdictions where these conferences and workshops would have been held. Uh, but I'm very proud to say that during that period, you know, Angola was, um, was a highly regarded, but still is a, a well-regarded jurisdiction as far as being open and transparent um you know we, we have provisions in place to deal with anti-money laundering uh, terrorist financing activities uh, so very very pleased that to, to be involved in that part of my of my journey in the public service and my next stop was as head of the tax department the inland review department mm-hmm. um so i would i would have been zacchaeus the tax collector <laughs> <laughs> um and from there I was elevated to like the, my current position as as deputy governor, so that's been my my career path. Not including your role as deputy governor, what's been one of your greatest lessons in public service? Humility, quite frankly, humility. You know, um, knowing that I don't know it all, and listen to me, open to advice. You know, because when I when I came back home, I, I thought I was a bit of a hot shot. You know, I was bright, um, had a degree that the ink wasn't even dry on. You know, and I was running and gunning and thought I was going to do all these wonderful things. And again, what I what I learned pretty quick is that you're not you're not a it's not a one man show. You know, you've got to be able to work with your colleagues, take their advice, seek their input, 
you know, in, in the gutter. So I think for me, one of the big lessons was be open to collaboration and, and take advice and feedback. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this is a three-part question about your role in terms of being deputy governor. Uh, number one, what's been your greatest challenge? Uh, well, I took the position I was um, appointed 1st of July 2016, right? And, you know, that's first year, you're feeling, you're feeling your way around, you're getting comfortable in a position, learning the ropes. As with any new job, take the time to, to you know to understand and, and just better understand what the situation is and, and make your adjustments. And then we had a new governor come in one year later, and then six weeks after, we were slammed by the worst natural disaster that I would have seen in, in my lifetime, which would have been the months of Hurricane Alma. Right? And then you're settling down from Alma, and then wham, you get hit by a pandemic. Right. So for me, leading the civil service through those three significant events I has hands down has been the most difficult challenge I've had to face career and, 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 and professionally. Because when, when, you, when you think about it, particularly after the hurricane, uh, you've got a cadre of, of, of public servants who probably coming out of busted up homes, going into busted up offices, driving busted up vehicles, including my own. You know, my house got some damage, so did the office, so did my vehicle. So through it all, you expect these folks to stay motivated and def- and, and um, deliver a high quality service. The show must go on. Yeah, so they, that was quite quite difficult. Um, then on top of that, engaging with our colleagues in the UK about the Angola program because you know you, you would have everybody would have been aware that the UK government would have granted us um, sixty million pounds in recovery aid. So to make sure that that. Um, that, that that aid went to the right places. Those, those things were clearly prioritized. You know, one of them, we would have done a lot of work on the education sector. We, we built the primary schools, the health sector. Um, so those so those types of issues. And then, and then and so you, you get another, you get, you get in set with that. And then we've had um, COVID. So how do you keep the public service running um, while facing these significant challenges? You know, so that, that was it. I would have hands down. So it hasn't been an easy stretch, to be quite frank. But through it all, the next part of the question is, through it all, what's been your greatest reward as Deputy Governor? The fact that we've, we've, we've come, that I'm very proud of the way the public service rose to these two challenges. You know, you, for instance, on the Angular program, with the assistance of our, of our, um, of our colleagues from the UK, uh, we would have delivered, I would have to say, 50 years of infrastructure development within three years. You know, when else are we going to build a high school, uh, primary schools, a clinic, um, two clinics, actually, the one in Seoul and the one in the Valley. You know, when, when, and, and, and at the same time, um, keep keep this, the services function. I think I think that's just the fact that we deliver these things in the face of the pandemic. If you see where Angola has come through the pandemic, right? Um, yes, we have EVs one faster loss of life, but now we are at a point where we call, our economy is recovering. The projects are, are nearing completion. A few hiccups here and there, but it's just been very rewarding to see these things come to fruition, to see services being accessed, to see tourists back on Ireland, to see people walking again, to see my friends in the hospitality sector back in jobs, walking and thriving, you know, that that's, and I, I can say that the public service had a, a huge role to play in making sure that that happened. So I'm, I'm very proud of, of 
to lead this organization through these difficult times. Parent, what would you say to the, a future deputy governor? Number one, I think you got to come to the job for the right reasons. That's the first thing. If 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 you if you if you are drawn by the quote unquote trappings of the office and the title, then you you you've started wrong. So therefore, I think the first thing is to come to the job, but for the right reasons. If you are passionate about Anguilla, passionate about the public service, I think that is to me the 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 key qualification. You got to have a passion for Anguilla and for public service. So number one, I'd say you have to get in it for the right reasons. Uh, number two, I think personal resilience. Uh, the fact that in this job you will be cursed at, you will be praised, you will be ostracized. You will be reviled and castigated and so forth. But you got to be able to stand in your, in your truth, right? If you know that your decisions are being made in the best interest of anyone, that you are applying laws and policies correctly and you are true to yourself, then you have come to me, come into it for the right reason and be true to yourself. Um, other thing I'd say to them too is, is actually... The people around you, the people who have to provide you advice and support, um, make sure you have a good team around you from your clerical staff to the permanent secretaries to everybody around you. Make sure that those persons have your back and you have theirs. And be open to the advice. Be open to challenge because you don't know it all um, and you don't have all the answers. So therefore, you have to rely on persons uh, to provide you that advice. And lastly, I have to say, um, not your relationship with, with your with your government. I, I would encourage you to do it with anybody. The people you work with closely, because remember, at the end of the day, you're exercising a delegated function, right? Because ultimately, the government's ahead of the public service in your role, now you're acting a delegated function. So therefore, you have to manage that relationship to the extent that there is a certain clarity between yourself and the governor. Um, and when there are points of disagreement, that those disagreements can be handled in a mature and open and frank manner. Um, and I've been very fortunate with the three governors I've worked with, I must say, to be able to speak my mind frankly on matters in which we disagree. And trust me, there are sometimes thorny and contentious issues uh, that occur. And, and, and given the nature of this work, that's that's just that's just how it goes. I mean, I don't see like that with my wife. We've been married for nine years, you know, but that doesn't mean you have a bad relationship. But my point is that when these disagreements come, that they can be discussed in a frank and open and transparent manner and that you are given an opportunity to deliver your point. And when at those times come, do it respectfully and to the fullest of your ability because don't, don't half step, you know, if you, have, if you feel strongly about a matter. And I understand that when a decision is made on a matter, um, you know, that you, 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 if you can't support it, then you do what you need to do. But at the same time, you just have to, you know, you just have to have that character of purpose. And once those issues are ventilated, you move on. You mentioned a bit earlier. You know, I'm I'm really, my, I'm really fixated on on the the fact that you you and the t and your uh, team had to deal with Hurricane Irma. No, I unfortunately was present for that monster, and uh, I I know what I left. Once I was able to leave the island three four weeks later, I know what I left, and you know everybody got together and really repaired the country. You had a bigger responsibility. Uh, being deputy governor, well, let me ask you this: in, in in terms of a broader look at things, how can small island states survive such a a potent mix of disasters 
uh, going in, into the into this next decade? Boy, I think we're at the mercy of a lot of the policies, environmental policies of those bigger countries. Because, for instance, um, those bigger industrial nations would have had a head start on us in terms of the growth and development using lots of unclean technology. And we're now paying the price for that. You know, and, and, and while, while, so it's, it's very difficult for us in terms of, um, I, know from, I, I know from my own experience, sea levels are rising. You know, beaches that I used to go to when I was a kid, or Little Harbor in particular, I can see that the sea levels are a lot higher than I remember. So I know that this, this whole issue of climate change is a real thing. Um, and, and for, for us, and the stars are becoming more frequent, more powerful. Um, but I don't think there's anything you can do to, to stop Mother Nature from hitting you. But in terms of being prepared, I think our building codes have all been strengthened to include, you know, things like hurricane and seismic activities. And, and I mean, it sounds crude and it sounds very, uh, very, uh, very unsophisticated answer. But I think all we can do is, is hunger down when these, when these storms hit. You know, that's it. I don't know what what can you do to stop a hurricane from coming. Right. You, know, you don't know when the hurricane is going to hit, so it's, it's very difficult in terms of um, our survival. However, I think from an economic resilience standpoint, we need to make sure that our economies are diversified enough, and that when those good times roll, that we do have sufficient reserves in place that we can actually respond to these crises um, quickly, sooner rather than later. Uh, so I think for a lot of times, when the good times do come to make sure that economically speaking that we are in a place where we can build up those results, pay our current bills, build up those results, pay down the debt to make sure that we're at a better place where we can respond uh, said, um, quickly to these challenges. Well said, well said. So Perrin, you hold a BBA in finance from Howard University. I think you said that the your professor told you that this is this is Howard, is it's a BBA and not BS. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> bachelor of Business Administration, uh, not 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 a Bachelor of Science. You know, it said it said to be not about BS at all. You know, I remember that very well. <laughs> <laughs> but you also you also hold an MA, right? An MA in Business Administration from Durham University. Yes. Gotcha. So my question to you is: If you were not in government or doing government business, and you had started a business on your own, what what type of business would it be? I would have to say it would. It would, it would it's a very. I've got such weird passions outside of what I do. I'm a huge music lover. I love live events, live concerts, and so forth. And if I were to get into business, it, it would have to be something related to music. Either managing a venue, not necessarily a club, but a, a space that does live performances. Like various concerts and shows, whether it's dance or, or music, whatever the case may be, I would love to to, to be involved in a, a venue that has a wide variety of, of performing arts going on. Um, I would that's something I would really love to see in Angola at some point. A venue, not not um, you know um, a carnival village with a, with a roof on it, but one that could facilitate various types of artistic performances. So I think if, if I were to start over again, um, perhaps in my next life, because I, 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 I just love that being around that energy so much that that's, that's what I would want to do. Um, and also, my, I have two brothers that are chefs, Dale, my older brother Dale, who runs um, Tasty's restaurant, and my younger brother Shaquem, who's a sous chef over at Aurora. And I love to cook as well, you know, and, and, and I, I, I would love to, if, if, if it's not that, something in, in hospitality. 
in mm. a restaurant or something. Awesome, awesome. Now, you've also dabbled a bit in teaching at the university level. But what what is teaching university taught you? Um, oh, you asked a lot of good questions tonight, man. I, did, <laughs> I, I wouldn't tell you was, I taught, I taught, uh, at the, I taught business courses over at the Anguilla Community College. Um, it's, the thing is, at the same time, I was teaching grade six social studies at an after school program. Oh. So on one, yeah, so, on one, so during the same time, I was teaching adults in the evening, and then I was teaching grade six social studies at the after school program and, and at the Elios Center in Santa Grau. It was an after school program put on by the Methodist Church, and I was to teach uh, grade six. Um, Grade six social studies, and I was—I I really, really, really enjoy teaching both grades. I'm sorry, both both um, both courses. Right. The younger kids, in particular, to see those, those eyes light up when they figure things out, when they discover new knowledge. You know, I, I found that for me, it was—it was—I was wonderful giving back. You know, I just—I just, I just love doing it. The kids were very receptive of it. Uh, the parents enjoyed it and so forth. So I, I that was a that was a reward in and of itself for me to see the grades improve, knowing that you had a hand in that. Um, and and I, even now I still see some of them. They say hi to me and so forth, uh, which I really really do appreciate. Uh, at the coming to the college level, um, I was amazed at the the discussion, the discussions we'd have because every now and then things would come up that that we would go off on these tangents. And it was interesting because the community college had a lot of people from different countries as well. We had students from Jamaica, from Dominica, from Dominican Republic, and Angola. And, and to hear the different perspectives and the issues facing Angola, and a lot of it that took away back to my job because at the time I was doing, I was I was also in trade and investment and, and and teaching those business subjects. When you hear their views and what it's like to access services and why some procedures are the way they are, and what it did, it gave me a different viewpoint. The whole, um, you know, business service. What what is it like to do business in Angola? That makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So it kind of put it put me in it because for, I, I, my whole life, I mean, my whole career, I've been on the other side. I've been on the receiving end of applications for licenses and all these different things. But to hear business students now uh, from the community college talk about their experiences and applying for permits and applications and trying to do business and getting getting their perspective. Uh, I think that was quite enlightening to kind of understand because uh, I, I just never appreciate Because, you know, when you work in an office, the procedure is the procedure. You never once question, well, why do we have to do it like that? Is there a better way? You sort of meet and, it there. Exactly, exactly. And you, when you listen to persons who actually have to use these services, give you that insight into the experience, and then you say, hmm. And that, that, that would have led to my, my feeling back certain changes and certain procedures that we would have done in terms of our, our processes and all um, you know, and that, that to me, that was the biggest thing, the biggest lesson learned on, on both sides of that. Speaking of teaching, we know that you have uh, the ultimate student, uh, the most important person you will ever teach. You have a, a little princess, a daughter. Now, what has fatherhood taught you? <laughs> Patience. <laughs> the easy one. Patience. <laughs> Patience, you know, um, she, 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 Morgan is a bright, intelligent, rambunctious six-year-old. Um, she is a joy to Heisen and I. Uh, we, we, we love her dearly. And it's been, a, it's, it's been for both of us, it's been an 
honor and a privilege to be to be your parents and to raise her. But that comes with a lot of testing, you know, because she's at a point now where um, she doesn't she doesn't settle for the answers anymore. There's, a, there's, there's always a follow up question. She's at the why stage. Excuse me. She's at the why stage. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 some of the things that she says makes blows our mind. You know, I, I give you an example. A couple of weeks ago. Uh, there was always this. She, she was guarded, She was getting in trouble with this arm, but I don't know one of her classmates. And we get these reports that there were always um, seemed to be these disagreements between her and this little boy. And she said that he keeps hitting on and running away. So I said, Marvin, you know, whenever that happens, you need to tell the teacher. You know, you don't you don't get into fights at school. You don't do that. You tell the teacher. You know. And then the next day she comes home, and then um, Harrison is upset because Marvin and this boy has another incident. You know. So I, you know, of course, I said, I said Marvin. We agree, you're going to tell the teacher, she said, mm -mm, I didn't agree, you know? <laughs> and, and it's little things like that that just blows your mind because I know I got to rack my brain if we had agreed. Because all I know is I told her. And when I tell you something, as your parent, I expect you to listen. I don't expect to have to form an agreement. So when I said that, that we agreed, she corrected me and said, no, 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 I didn't agree. You know, and it's little things like that that um, that, that we have to be deal with on a regular basis in terms of her intellect and her ability to think for herself, uh, I find that to be the most amazing. Sensing a future attorney there. The, the, she, well, the, you know, except she wasn't rude, I disrespect me, she was just matter of fact statement that she didn't agree. The, on I might have said it, but... She, she, got, she got you on the technicality. She got me on the technicality, you know, and I, 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 and I just looked at her and said, um, and, and, and we would, you know, yeah, she got a point, you know, so anyway, I think we, we, the, the point got across, though, but it's those kind of interactions that I find to be, she's very much into science and so forth. Uh, she loves looking at YouTube videos about science and the planets and so forth. Um, loves card games, much as not, and loves to run around and play with her friends. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's been a joy having on our lives. Awesome. Awesome. Now, you indicated earlier that you had a love for music, but I know that you have a uh, love for reggae in particular. Tell us some of your favorite bands or acts. Oh, man. No, 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 you, no you got me all excited. You know, um, <laughs> hands down, my, my favorite act of all time um, is Third World. Uh, I've seen them perform 23 times over the years, and they... they, and they, 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 they They've seen me so often that some of them, the members and I are now good friends and so forth. 23 um, I, times, you say? 23 times, since 1993. <laughs> that was my first concert. I got into them to high school when I was in high school, and I've never looked back since. But I'm, I'm heavy, heavy into Thor World. Uh, my hands are my favorite act. I, I saw them um, when I was in the States just recently um, in New Jersey, Camden, New Jersey. A wonderful time. I've uh, met them a couple of times over the years. Um, they know me, I know them. Um, I saw Born in Spirit recently in, in Central Park. Um, had a, a wonderful time at that concert. Um, Morgan Heritage, uh, Barris Hammond. I saw Barris Hammond and St. Kitts recently. So I, I just love live reggae music in particular. Uh, and also just discovering these little out-of-the-way spots in, in D.C., in Maryland, and um, in Virginia, and also in New York. Um, my cousin Alec and I, who lives in, um, in D.C., we discovered a little spot in um in silver spring and there's a, a, a reggae band playing there a guy called R rass slick in the dr bus crew 
So I just come across those little, those little hole in, I would call it a hole in the wall. But it was, <laughs> it was really, really good, you know. Um, there's a spot down in Adams Morgan called Bookham Cafe. Bookham Cafe. I remember yeah, it well. Yeah, I mean, some excellent live reggae music uh, in, in, in D.C., uh, yeah, that that is my thing, man. Hands down, that is that is where I come alive. You know, I just love the energy of a of a live reggae concert. You know, that is just one of my, my favorite thing in the whole world. So that that leads to my follow up question. Now, you sort of blew my mind when you said you've seen it twenty three times. But I was going to ask what what is what what has been or or what was the most memorable concert uh, for you? There must be one that stands out. Two, two. Number one, the first time I ever saw them was in, in Anguilla back in um, 1993. Um, it, it just blew my mind because remember, the, the, this is music I would have been hearing for years before. You know, you would have had the, the cassette tapes at the time. You hear them on the radio in 96 degrees, but then to see it perform live and sound exactly like you would expect it to be, I think that just blew my mind seeing him for the first time and just getting that bug and being hooked you know and then the second time I saw them would have been September not the second time they the other show that stands out to me was a show that they did in St. Martin in September of 2013 I was an event sponsored by Hennessy and that show went on for almost two hours and they played every single song I don't know if, they, if I don't know if they were if, this, if, if I would have telepathically sent them the set list from my mind. <laughs> but they they went through every single song that I would have wanted to hear sort of world play. You know, and one of my, my favorite songs of all time um, from them is a song called Always Around. Mm. And they play that song so beautifully. But it also stands out for another uh, another a more um, a sadder reason. One is that was the last time I saw the lead singer Bunny Rhodes perform. Uh, that was the last time. Mm. But I got to go backstage as well. I'm um, Banks and D1 those guys are there. And I got to go backstage and hang out and meet the band and so forth. And um, it was the last time I saw Bonnie Royce perform. But also on that same trip, um, our mutual friend, Erica Kanagita of Blessed Memory. Ah. Uh, this was this tour was in St. Martin. And I would have stayed at our house at an event. Uh, we were talking about the show and so forth. Um, and that was the last time that I actually home it all properly. Uh, you know, sadly she passed away the year after. Right. You know? uh, for that for that reason, that that last show in particular is one that I will never forget because of those um, because of, of what happened afterward. Because Bonnaroo would have passed on um, the following year as well, in 2014. So both of them mm. passed on in 2014. So it's it's kind of for me. The, the set list number one and the fact that uh, those two persons um, would have passed on uh, is why that, that that show in particular I think stands out in my mind more than anything else. I always remember those two um, those two souls. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Now, uh, you know, I, I was going to ask you this question, but you, you, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I know the answer. <laughs> I was gonna, I, I was gonna ask you. I know, I know you tease a lot that you are. An amateur drummer. Uh, am I correct that you actually brought a you bought a drum set some years ago as well? I do, I do have a drum set at home. I've taken lessons with Jaden. Uh, I've taken lessons with um, Darius James. Um, however, due to you know the nature of the job, fatherhood and so forth, I have not been able to to give it as much attention as I really want to. You know, however, I do have a drum set that it's 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 it's, it's operable. I should say. 
<laughs> and my intention is to, to get back to it at some point in the near future, you know? But the, 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 the question was, if you were to give, if, if you were to be given the opportunity to drum for any band, which band would it be? <laughs> oh, of course it'd be Third World. <laughs> of course it'd be Third World. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, the, 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 the drummer is a very good friend of mine, uh, Tony Williams. I saw him in New Jersey the other day. And he's all, every time he, every time you see him, he's always got a kind word. Hey, good to see you. You know, he, he, he just, you know, and, and we, we talk and so forth. Um, you know, and, and it, it's, it's always a pleasure catching up with him. He's such a humble, phenomenal drummer, but more than anything else, he's just a phenomenal human being. You know, um, and, and every time, they, it's, they, they treat me like an old friend. You know, I come to the shows. Like this one, the last one in New Jersey gave me a backstage pass. You want to go up on stage, you know, and come come backstage, come meet the band. And it's, you know, so I was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's all right, man. You know, it's been a great show. I'm going to catch you at the next one, you know. And I really, I really appreciate the way they appreciate me. You know, mm-hmm. they, they see, me, see me face 101 times. And it's always greeted with, with love and, and, and respect. You know, I always say when, when a fan becomes family and vice versa, you know, and it's just, it's just always good, always good love, good energy. Um, when, when I go to the shows and so forth, which I, which I really appreciate. Awesome. Because you know how it is when you're, when you're the, the people in your favorite band know you and recognize you and, and consider you a friend too. And I always appreciate you coming to the shows. You know, they, they, this is a band that's been around for 50 years. You know, why would they even bother to entertain little old me? But they do. You know, they make time for me and I appreciate that. Indeed, indeed. Other than uh, Tony Williams, who are some of your other uh, favorite drummers? Um, the drummer for the Todd Roller for um, Winnie Stewart, um, John John Bottom from from Led Zeppelin. I mean, he's a he's a wild card in there, but the, the power of, of his drumming in, in, in that Led Zeppelin catalog. I also love um, Stuart Copeland from um, from Staying the Police. Mm-hmm. I think he's just got a very unique um, drumming style. Uh, then so just switching back. To reggae again, of course you, you cannot go wrong with a guy like Sly Dunbar. People like um, Carlton Barrett, who played with the Bob Martin Wheels originally. Um, of course, some newer, newer, the, the more newer drummers. I, I like. Um, God, I can't remember his name though. But he he was with. Um, he played drums for Morgan Heritage. So he's a young guy. I can't remember his name. Also, you got Cockadog, um, Cock Bennett. Better known as Cockadog, done a lot, did a lot of work for for Paris Hammond. Um, Santa Davis does he plays drums for Ziggy Marley. I mean, these guys are some just like, exceptional dudes. And then again, going all the way back to foundational drums, people like Leroy Hosford Wallace, you know, who would have done some work with um, with Bonnie Spear. You know, those guys are just just legendary guys, man. They just just off the top. You know, I just love 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 them. Lloyd Nim. Who played with the Scatterlights? I uh, saw him. I saw the Scatterlights recently. He's, he's a blessed memory now. Um, but those those guys, I mean, they, they're just tops all around, man. All around. Who but knew that? Who knew that the deputy governor? Chuck it from Nottingham. Chuck it from Nottingham, of course. Yeah, yeah. Chuck it. I remember Chuck it. Raz J. You know those local guys. Darius James. You know Jaden. I mean, all those guys. They, they, they said they know I love the instrument, and they always have time for me. You know, I got a lot of questions about their setup. The technique and so forth. Um, I, I, it's, it's a weird. You're right. I am a frustrated drum because I know so much <laughs> about the instrument. I know so much about the, the various techniques. When I talk to these guys, they you would believe that I'm a practicing drum because I just, I just know. Um, I'm just such a such. I just I just have such an interest interest in the instrument. You know the way the, the way it's tuned. Um, the different 
um, brands, you know, the ch- different sounds and so forth. And even on, on the recording side, you know, how to, how to mic up a drum to get the best sound, you know, whether you mic it above, below, above, you know, that type of thing. So I just, it's it's my thing, man. I, I go crazy when I, when I talk about drumming and live music and reggae and so forth. But yeah, I'm, as far as, I know I'm out of the place because I just get scatterbrained when I talk about this stuff. Um, but yeah, when it comes to those, those drumming, those, those are my guys. Who knew that the deputy governor was uh, a drum aficionado? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a, 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 a bottle line fanatic. Oh, fanatic. <laughs> when I see good drumming, man, you know. Um, yeah, man, that's, that's my thing. That's my thing. Got it, got it. Now, Pern, you've been to several countries, as you mentioned before. Which country impressed you the most? Hong Kong, hands down Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong because mm. yeah yeah I spent I spent about a week in Hong Kong back in 2006 it's it's it, I think it's because I was so exposed to the US and the UK right that I had not given any thought to what the what's over what's happening in the Far East so when I got to Hong Kong I was just blown away by the efficiency of the transit system the modernization of everything that they do you know in terms of um, back then uh, they were doing phone payments and so forth. Um, you know, it was, I, 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 I found the use of technology over there for transactions and so forth to be was just beyond anything I'd seen in the U.S. It was just a modern, highly developed country um, that, again, I, I, I think it's because I just was not thinking about it, didn't know what to expect. It just blew my mind. Um, and the food over there, one of the best foods I've ever had, you know, and they, they, you know, there's just a cultural aspect of it. Because you know, I, it's, you, know, you, you bought it in China. You know, and I, I love Asian cuisine, and I think the food, the um, just the whole experience being over there just blew my mind. It was so different from anything I'd ever seen before, and I just had a wonderful. I was over there in business, you know, and the um, just the whole experience was just mind blowing. And that trip you'd have done Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Thailand, you know, and just being over in Asia for the first time, I that that trip stands out more than any other I've been on in a long time. Perrin, what's the best advice you've ever received? And that can be career-wise, life-wise. What's the best advice? Oh, boy. I've received so much good advice over the years. Um, but I, I'd have to say, more recently, in, in the current world, I'd reflect on as a piece of advice that I got from the current governor, Ms. Delina Daniel Silveratno. Uh, and, and, and it's about working with people. And she always said, like, look, no matter no matter how bright you are, no matter how smart you are, right, you gotta learn to work with different personalities. And as she referred to it, the weird and the wonderful, you know. Um, the weird and the wonderful. The weird and the wonderful. You know, you, you, in, in these in these in these in these rules, you don't get to choose who you work with. You know, and the quicker you recognize uh, and accept that there will be differences, there will be different approaches, and if you don't know how to understand and appreciate um, different viewpoints and different personalities. Learn how to work. I'm not saying put up with nonsense. I'm saying learning how to work with people from with different approaches. And I find that to be very, very helpful in, in terms of trying to, you know, instead of being um, dismissive in my expectation, hey, I'm the deputy governor, you deal with me in a particular way. I think it's important. And if you want to get the best out of people, you know, to understand and appreciate that there are different approaches and you need to be open and understand those approaches. I don't say you got to agree with them, I accept them, but you have to give them due consideration. So I think to me, that's that's been a piece of advice that 
every reflecting on lately. It's a, it's a top. It's a, that's why it's at the tip of my tongue, and I just find that that to be so true. Because in this job, you work with you meet so many different personalities, you know, and and so many issues. And if you don't have the capacity to understand and appreciate those differences and actually find a way to common understanding, then you know you 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 you, you won't succeed in a job like this. So that's that's the best advice I've gotten um, of recent that I've been reflecting on. And very good advice it is. What's some of the best advice that you can give? <laughs> um, I think cultivating personal resilience, especially like I can only speak from the framework of of, of the role of my account responsibilities, particularly as a public figure. I think public resilience and, and, and having a good, strong support network around you. So part of cultivating um, good um, personal resilience is actually having a strong network to rely on people you can trust and so forth. I've been very, very fortunate to have a, a cadre of, um, of friends around me. I mean, I, I know, like, like I mean, you know, I, I imagine that your listeners will know by now, you and I go way back and so forth. And, and, you know, one of the last good times I had was actually at your house just a few weeks ago. You know, it was me, you, out of schoolmates, and just catching up on those old stories and the fact that I could, I could um, be just one of the guys you know, not have to worry about the weight of the deputy governor's office and so forth. Those types of, um, that type of environment, that type of scenario, to me, I would not, I wouldn't survive if I couldn't do that. So I always appreciated people like yourself and Ensign Alec for giving me that space to come and just, hey, you're not the deputy governor anymore. You are our boy. Apparently, we can run jokes on you. You're going to run jokes on us. And you will have the space to just relax and, and you know, and just kick it. And so forth. So I think out of that, that's so my point is cultivate that um, personal resilience. Make sure you got a strong support network around your family, your friends, and the people that support you. Because at the end of the day, these these jobs just like could be very lonely and difficult because you make you make decisions on a daily basis that um, are, 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 that disappoint people on a regular basis. It's it's the right thing, but at the end of the day, it's an answer that person may not necessarily have anticipated our life. So therefore, if you do not have the um, the way to deal with that type of public scrutiny and that type of public castigation, if you don't have somewhere to go where persons won't judge you and you're just going to be accepted uh, and, and treated as a, as, a, as you know, if your humanity is not going to be recognized by people around you, then you got some serious problems. So for me, no matter what it is, whether you're a student, uh, the deputy governor, or whoever, you know, find a way to cultivate that um, personal resilience because you need because at the end of the day you need it to get you by you, you need it no matter what job you're in whether you're a student or not you need to have personal resilience as you will break very 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 good advice what would you say to 16 year old Perrin uh, you're better than this mm. you're better than this you are smart you're bright you got great potential you need to focus you need to settle down you know, um, focus on, try, try, decide what you want to do with your life. Start having that conversation early on, you know, and, 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 and walk towards it. I was quite aimless when I was 16. You know, my mom was trying desperately, you know, and, and I mean, she, I, 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 the end result is that she succeeded because given where I am today, I, I credit her uh, with a lot of my, my, my academic career success for, for, not, for not giving up on me. 
So I have to tip my hat to my mom at that, you know. But I, I would tell sixteen-year-old me just to get focused, you know, um, that there's there's a lot more beyond this, you know. That there's a lot more that you have to offer, and just understand that you have you have you have your contribution to make, and just get focused, be prepared, get prepared for it. That's what I said to sixteen-year-old me. I mean, it sounds I, I, I'm saying that because I know what I was lacking at the time. It was structure, and it was order, and it was focus. So if I had those things, um, I think I don't know. Maybe maybe, maybe my my trajectory is, is what it is. You know, maybe I had to go through that to end up to where I, where I am. You know, but at the same time, um, is there a shortcut? Is there a, a life hack? Had I got <laughs> focused on up? Would I've gone after university? You know, I, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, but I can tell you that sixteen year old me needed a certain level of of focus and structure that I didn't have. Gotcha, gotcha. So we we've already discussed, you know, what sixteen year old you uh, was and was not doing, and 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 your outlook on life at the time. But we are where we are, and we're in a very good place. And my question to you now, at the ripe old age of forty, uh, I don't want to say I don't. We we sound so old. We sound so old. <laughs> Hey, yeah, ex- exactly. If I, if I if I say forty, how much? <laughs> um, you know, what does success look like to you now? Um, it's it's more on a, a very personal level. Uh, I'm, I'm able to provide a home for my family. I'm able to provide for my wife and daughter, and so forth. I can do that comfortably. Uh, my my daughter's thriving. Um, so I think a lot, a lot of a lot of what I do is basically for her. You know, I, w- I want to make sure that the Angola that she's going to grow up in is one that allows her to be all that she can be and wants to be, whatever her full potential and ambitions are. You know, so I I, I, I consider it a success in the way my wife and I are raising her. So that for me, that's what success looks like. And in terms of um, on a personal level, if I, if I leave this place better than I met it, you know, then that, that I would consider to be a success. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. What's the next big thing for Perrin Bradley? Um, you know, I, I have been contemplating that over the last couple of years uh, in terms of what, what my next um, what my next act would be. And the reality of it is, again, I keep I keep coming back to my daughter, but I think over the last my time in office, I I have not been as present as I would have liked to be for. I think um, I, I'll credit to my wife, Hyson, who hands down is the primary caregiver for a daughter. So I think um, I would love to spend a bit more time with Marlon on the family side, at least in the first, for the first couple of months. But, but beyond that, I, I, I can't see beyond simply being there for her, whether it's being a, a stay-at-home dad for a little while, you know, the pickups, the drop-offs, the school events and so forth. I just I just feel like I missed out on that. And I, I'm, I'm desperately wanting wanting to get in on that action. I mean, it sounds simple and ridiculous. Um, but quite frankly, that 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 the dad stuff is, is what what rests on my mind um, when I think about the things that are going well, what I wish I had more time for. And, and I think we could come down to that. Right. Um, yeah, put in, put in someone's time with Marlon. But beyond that, um, whether it's entrepreneurship, uh, a regional institution, or whatever the case may be, I have no idea. But for now, I, I can't see past putting in some time with Morgan. Very, 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 very commendable. 
guy wants to be a dad more. <laughs> now, you know, when you're 105 years old and you, you've built your, your house on the bluffs of Meads Bay on those hills and you're overlooking the ocean with Hyacinth and, and, and Morgan and her husband and family, what would you like to say? What would you say is the thing that you wanted to accomplish and you can pat yourself on the back and say, I did accomplish it. At the end of it all, and the chapters of Perrin Bradley are coming to a close, what would you say, what, what, what is your ultimate goal? What's your ultimate dream? Um, that I raise a decent human being. So you, you have to forgive me to be, to be so heavy on the, on the, on the... No, no, I mean, no, this is, this is you. Thinking, you know, but, but I, I keep, I keep, and I said it in my, my original interview, uh, when I applied for this job initially, I remember saying, asked me, you know, what motivates me? And I remember saying to the panel, um, that I, I reflect, because Morgan would have been one, he just, she wasn't even a year old at the time, you know, and it, it just changed my total outlook. And life, know that my wife and I had this 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 being that they were totally and solely responsible for, at least for the for the foreseeable future, you know. And I was saying to them that I I, I want to be able to shape an Angola to be a, to be a part of shaping an Angola um, that gives us that that she and her friends and our classmates could have ever opportunity imaginable, you know, whatever whatever their their, their laudable ambitions were. That Angola was in a place to do so, and if I could have a hand in that, that I would, I would. That that is what drives me every single day to make sure that we leave Angola in a place where the ones who are coming behind us, I don't have to contemplate things like going abroad and so forth. Like like we discussed about brain drain, mm-hmm. so if we can create an environment for them that that says, hey, you know, I I can have a wonderful life here in Angola. I can I can live my life's ambitions, all my hopes and dreams are. Achievable right here in Angola. Options. Yeah, so for me, so just flipping back to your original question, you know, raising a decent human being. If 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 Marlon turns out to be a productive, well respected member of society, I would have thought that Tyson and I would have done our jobs. Hmm. I want to I want to say that because again, reflecting on my time in office, um, I come across a lot of broken people were broken for various different reasons. Yes. Yeah, and, and I kind of realized that, you know, when, when it comes to raising our children or family lives and so forth, that, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to be more mindful of of some of the missteps and mistakes that we can make, particularly with the young people. And, you know, we, we just we just had to do a little better for them. Indeed, indeed. Now, Perrin, this is a this section of the interview where I strap on my spacesuit and I go into outer space and I leave you on the planet alone. You are on planet 30 and the planet is yours. What say you to the audience? Whatever it is you want to say. Particularly to my Angolan people. Again, I, I know these things sound all fluffy and kumayage, but I really think we need to be kinder to each other. I find that a lot of times it disputes the squabbles and 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 the, the, just how coarse we engage with each other. When I listen to a lot of the chatter on the radio, I listen to a lot of what's said or there on social media, the commentary. It's just so unkind for no reason. You know, we don't we don't do enough to build each other up and celebrate each other's achievements and accomplishments. You know, I just I find that I mean, as simple as it sounds, you know, I I just wish we'd be kinder to each other. I really 
I genuinely feel that. I find that a lot of times the viciousness, um, Crispin, you know, it's so beyond the pale, you know, and, and, and the, the thing is, it's unnecessary. You know, why can't we engage in dialogue and disagree with each other respectfully? You know, you can make your point, you can disagree, you know, but why does it have to be so coarse? I don't think it needs to be, you know, so if, if anything, let's be kinder to each other. Perfect message to leave the interview. If you would like to, if anyone would like to follow this deputy governor slash drummer coming to a band near you slash your restaurateur, how would they follow you? Um, you, can, you, can, you can follow me on Instagram, Perrin Bradley, at, at Perrin Bradley. Uh, however, professionally, you can like Governor's Office page, HM Governor's Office in Anguilla. Also, the Governor of Anguilla's um, Facebook page, I would encourage anybody to like and follow those two pages. It keeps you up to date with what, what's been happening with us here in Anguilla. Uh, what's been going on in the governor's office, what's going on in the governor of Angola. So I encourage you to like and, and click like and subscribe to those two Facebook pages. Uh, you can add me, on, on, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of it, LinkedIn. Um, and I, I'm using my, my, my given name, Perrin Bradley, so you can you can find me easily on those sites. So anybody's there, I love meeting new people, so I'm, I'm open to friend requests and so forth. So bring them on. All right. Drummer slash future restaurateur slash deputy governor slash public servant, man of the people, Perrin Bradley. Cannot thank you enough for being on Planet 30. And uh, have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the year. Well, Crispin, thank you so much uh, for having me. I had a fantastic time. Uh, I think you, you, you made me kind of think about things that I hadn't thought about for quite a while. So I, 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 I want to thank you for... Um, for taking me there, so to speak. But again, uh, I just want to commend you for what you're doing as well. I think uh, I've been listening to, the, to your podcast over the, over the last last couple of months, uh, and each one is more interesting than the other. So I'm hoping that perhaps this one um, is fits into that pantheon of, of planetary interviews as well. But thank you very much for having me. I had a wonderful time. Indeed it does. Thank you for being here. All right, you're welcome, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet30, visit our website, Planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.